and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. Today's topic, the Pentagon and UFO secrets. Now, I found this article on the War Zone. It's a section that you can find on thedrive.com. And thedrive.com is a fantastic website for UFO research. They do a lot of great work over there. I highly recommend checking it out. And the title says, Here is what the Pentagon is not answering about the Air Force and recent UFO encounters. The article is by Tyler Rugaway, dated March 23, 2020. It says, The Air Force attempted to answer our questions, but the DOD official in charge of the UFO inquiries didn't share their findings or anything at all. This is something we see happening more and more in life. People find how little control that we have over our own lives when we bump up against these bureaucrats. And these bureaucracies, they're wielding rules as if they are the law of the land. And for all intent and purpose, they have the enforcement in the law of the law of the land. And there's nothing that we as citizens can do about them. We can see this with this COVID panic, how governors and mayors have just gone in and randomly shut down businesses because... They claim that they're afraid of the COVID virus. There is a disturbing trend in this country of bureaucrats acting in the capacity of dictators, controlling people's life, refusing to share with us information that we have every right to see. Now, in this case here, it says, one of the biggest questions regarding the U.S. Navy's recent disclosures Regarding strange encounters with supposedly unidentified flying craft, is why are we only hearing about this highly concerning phenomena from just one service? A fact that's commonly understood is that it is not the Navy's job to maintain sovereignty over America's airspace. It is the Air Force's. If strange and unidentified craft are being detected or seen, the Air Force has the mission to respond and investigate, not the Navy. And it can do so at a moment's notice. So far, the Air Force has been totally mum on this issue, which is extremely bizarre considering the Navy's own messaging surrounding it. Now, if we just stop and consider for a minute, we have to wonder what's going on here that the Navy and the Air Force are acting so differently when it comes to UFO disclosure. Is this a case of good cop, bad cop? Or is this a case where you have two of these two of these huge bureaucracies, these military organizations that are just being run by individuals and not under, say, a blanket a blanket uh, theory of how we should operate. It seems as though we have two different military organizations entirely operating here. One wants to talk about the UFOs and the other doesn't. And we have to ask ourselves, is that something that we're prepared to accept in America? Aren't we supposed to all be on the same page here? Gazlana says, with this in mind, last September I reached out to the Air Force, that's the author speaking, with a series of very pointed questions regarding what seems like a massive discrepancy in regards to the military branch's ability to execute its homeland air defense mission. What seemed like a good start to finding answers into something of a nightmare that has made me lose all confidence in the Defense Department's ability to address a subject which they themselves have actively helped elevate within the public's consciousness in any meaningful manner. 
My initial inquiry to the Air Force resulted in a very positive experience. The folks at the Air Force headquarters press desk were not phased at all by the topic and seemed eager to look into it on our behalf. After discussing the issues with them, directly on the phone, the question I sent to them were specifically written to move the ball forward on this critical aspect of the issue and in doing so getting the Air Force on record about the issues overall in some manner. Now, if I could just interject here, I think a lot of times when people address those first questions to a bureaucracy or a branch of the military, what they're coming what they're coming in contact with is these um, low-level to mid-level folks who have been put in there to deal with these kind of questions. And a lot of these people probably are genuinely nice, but we have to keep in mind that these bureaucracies are compartmentalized. And the power and the information that constitute that power is concentrated in certain pockets, sometimes at the top of the hierarchy, sometimes in a back room somewhere. But it's concentrated among these people that come into these positions and that are buried in these bureaucracies for decades upon decades. So it doesn't surprise me that the author here starts off on the right foot and feels like they're going to get some answers, but soon comes up a brick wall. Because he's walked in the safe, but what he's not thinking about is, is that the most of the money in the bank is kept into the safe. He's walked into the bank, but he's forgetting that the money is in the safe. He's talking to the teller. He can get a little money from them, but their real money is kept in the safe. And then the real big money is not even in the safe. It's on a computer somewhere in the forms of zeros and ones. So it's almost impossible for us to access the real valuable information. The article goes on and says, Ideally, this could have included some background as to the nature of these events from the service's point of view, and especially in regards to its homeland air sovereignty mission, as well as information about whether its own air crews were experiencing similar encounters. Here are the questions I fielded to them on September 19, 2019. He says, first off, here is what we are looking for on the ongoing UFO UAP story with the Navy and the U.S. Air Force's position and comment on this issue. And then he says, have Air Force pilots encountered any similar unexplained phenomena on radar, electro-optically or visually? If so, what is the general frequency and magnitude of these events? Question number two. Navy Super Hornet pilots out of NASA Oceana had constant encounters with these objects in 2014 and 15, especially on radar. It got so bad that by early 2015, Oceana filed NOTAMs warning aviators about the phenomena in the warning areas off Virginia. We have talked to the crews directly about this and are in the process of obtaining these NOTAMs and the paper trail leading to their posting. Langley's F-22s, which have superior sensor capabilities in some respects to the Super Hornets, as well as the, as well as the base's T-38 aggressors, are based right next door and use the exact same warning areas for training daily. Did Langley air crews experience the same phenomena? If so, to what extent? What about other U.S. Air Force assets that use the same air, sport, air, force, air space for training? Next question. 
the Navy, the Navy changed its reporting practices and procedures for encounters with unexplained flying objects, significantly due to the massive increase in incidents in recent years. Has the Air Force done the same? If not, why? Because does even does it even have set procedures for these events? If so, what are they? Has the U.S. Air Force experienced the same massive increase in incursions of UAPs over its bases and installations that the U.S. Navy has? Does the Air Force have similar electro-optical infrared video of UAPs, similar to what the Navy has, or other data for that matter? Does the Air Force see this phenomena as a national security threat? What is it doing to mitigate or better understand it? Thanks so much for your help on this. I think it's critical to clear these details up, especially now that the Navy has admitted the videos depicting these unexplained craft are indeed real and show objects it can identify. He goes on and says, I quickly followed up with another question. The Navy is saying these things are constantly, as in many times a month or more, busting into controlled or even secured airspace. In 2015, they were there for they were there for days off Virginia in the warning areas, even causing the base to post no tams due to near misses, etc. The U.S. Air Force is tasked with protecting this airspace. Has the U.S. Air Force launched alerts and investigated these when the Navy, or maybe even the U.S. Air Force, was calling them out? What was done in regards to homeland defense when these were in the warning areas so persistently? How did the U.S. Air Force and its NORAD arm take this issue up during the 2014-15 incidents? And what does the Navy, and what does the Navy say has occurred constantly all over? through this very day. Wow. Now that's a lot of questions. And I'm just going to guess here that the typical uh, Navy intelligence officer, whoever sitting down to read those questions, probably just wadded those things up and threw them in a pile. If I could make a suggestion, if I was going to be sending inquiries to the Navy on something like UFOs, I think I'd send maybe four or five very specific very short questions and just leave it at that because these guys don't want to walk into a trap and if you're going to get disclosure I like the way that Greenwald does it on the black vault he'll send a request for some specific document so that way he's got him he's got him on the exact document that he's asking for and then if they send the document back to him it's all blacked out and redacted then maybe he'll send back another request for you know less redaction or something he's he starts out with something simple and then narrows his way down. And a lot of times he comes across some of the most just mind-blowing evidence. Because what happens is he starts to he starts to kind of rope these guys into a corner a little bit. But the problem I see with this line of questioning this fellow has taken is that he's asking so many questions and he's putting so much information out there that I think it could actually overwhelm the person that's reading. And I think the best thing to have done here would to have been very specific, very short questions, and then follow up from there. Now it goes on, he says, Once again, I have to stress that the Air Force has the Homeland Air Sovereignty Mission. 
Fighter aircraft set on alert across the United States ready to scramble within a matter of minutes to intercept and investigate any unknown craft flying in or near the nation's airspace. Now that's correct. We hear all the time about Russian uh, aircraft threatening our airspace and how the American uh, U.S. fighters were scrambled to meet the craft in the sky. Possibly he could have just simply asked them, have U.S. aircraft been scrambled in the past, say, three years to your knowledge, to address a, a UFO? That might have been a question to ask. It says, this includes what some may traditionally call UFOs. Fighter, fighter aircraft set on alert across the United States, ready to scramble within a matter of minutes to intercept and investigate any unknown aircraft flying in or near the nation's airspace. This includes what some may traditionally call UFOs. The war zone has incredibly in-depth evidence of how, how such an action is taken with regards to the presence of transient unidentified flying objects, let alone ones that are persistently operating in restricted airspace, as was supposedly the case off the coast of the United States in 2014 and 15. Well, right there, if they have this evidence, the best thing that they could have done was just have to have crafted a question, a short, simple question, in regard to that evidence, and put that to the Air, to the Air Force, especially if they would have a name, date, place. I mean, these things have to be specific. Air Force units that fulfill the Homeland Air Defense mission are spread across the country, but these but those equipped with the highest level of fighter aircraft capability are scattered around the continental United States maritime perimeter and are also based in Alaska and Hawaii. Equipped with the most powerful fighter-optimized active electronically scanned array radars in the world and carrying sniper tar targeting pods for long-range visual target identification, primarily fulfill the maritime border defense role in the lower 48 states, with the F-22s in Hawaii and Alaska doing the same. F-16CDs, which are also now equipped with AESA radars based at Andrew Air Force Base just outside of Washington, D.C., keep watch over the capital region. Other F-16s from a handful of Air Force units that patrol the central U.S. can also help augment the country's perimeter aerial security. But the alert mission is one that must be specifically trained for, with unique protocols and infrastructure requirements. It is, resource it is resource intensive and not cheap to execute either. In other words, it is not something that just any fighter squadron, especially a Navy one that has a very different mission focus, can just execute on the fly under normal control circumstances. As such, my question attempted to fill in the missing part of the Navy's recent UFO-related accounts. If these flying aircraft were indeed being detected, how is it possible that the Air Force didn't scramble to investigate them and do so multiple times over the course of these events? If incursions over installations are ongoing, regardless of if they are drones or something far more fantastical, how isn't the Air Force directly involved with investigating and mitigating these potential threats inside the Air Force inside the airspace they are responsible for. Well, if I could interject, I would not expect an answer on that. Now, you can see what happened last uh, 
winter when we had the drone swarms flying all over Colorado, uh, Nebraska, many western states. And all the government agencies were mum on it. Everybody claimed that they didn't know anything about it, which turned out to be a lie. Because what we found out later was finally admitted was that the uh, Air Force missile bases out in Colorado and Nebraska and that frequently uh, war game what would happen if they were invaded by drones. Well, that's perfectly fine. I mean, I think we're all okay with the Air Force war gaming uh, stuff to keep the missile silos safe. But instead of them just coming out and saying that right at the beginning, they let everybody, they just allowed this anxiety to spread. They wouldn't directly address what was going on with these large swarms of drones that certainly weren't put up by recreational drone users. And it took weeks of people inquiring about this and really getting quite agitated before we finally got some truth about the matter. And it was addressed. So I, I'm not hopeful for disclosure from the U.S. Air Force. And it almost seems like the disclosure from the, Na from the Navy was either accidental or some kind of controlled narrative. Let's not forget that as part of that disclosure from the Navy, there was a lot of uh, positive press, and I have to speculate profits, uh, gained on the part of organizations like Tom DeLong's Academy to the Stars. Remember, they were the ones that seemed to got a hold of that that cockpit video first for some reason. So it almost seems as though there were. I mean, you couldn't blame somebody for thinking that the Navy or that certain people within the Navy had ulterior motives for disclosing that UFO information. Now, apparently, in the Air Force, that ulterior motive doesn't exist because they're showing no desire or need to disclose this UFO phenomenon. Now, the article goes on here a little bit, and I'll just skip down here closer to the bottom. It says, after promising to start with the Air Force itself, I was told that the inquiries had been forwarded to the Office of Secretary of Defense, OSD, Public Affairs Arm. One Public Affairs Officer, Susan Gauff, would be handling the request. At first, this sounded very promising. The inquiry had been elevated to someone in a position that might be able to really add some unique context to the issue. Sadly, this ended up being anything but the case. Simply put, my experience with Susan, and I'm not sure if it's Gao or Goff, has been the worst I have had with any of the Defense Department's public affairs personnel ever. What has transpired, or more accurately, what hasn't transpired, over the last six months leaves me with no confidence or trust in this official representing the DOD on the issue. This is not personal in any way. She may be a wonderful person, but her behavior has been a clear example of everything the Pentagon's media operations should not be. And it certainly is not due to a lack of training or experience. Her resume is impressive and may even be concerning to some who are seeking some morsel of truth regarding this bizarre and historically tortured issue. My experience is not in any way, my experience is not unique in any way. 
Others who are working this story have had similar experiences almost to a laughable degree. The reason why so many journalists are interacting with her at all on this issue is that she now holds the entire media public affairs portfolio on UFOs within the DOT. Well, think about that. One person with control over all of the UFO information in the Department of Defense. Now, see, you can elect somebody who you think is a populist like Trump, and I'm sure he's a great guy, but it doesn't do any good when he constantly appoints deep state actors to these key positions. And you have to wonder if he's just doing it because he's too busy to pay attention or if he's being forced to. But this is a classic case of a gatekeeper. You have these journalists who somehow have it in their head that if they just ask the question the right way, they'll get the answer. But over and over again, we see them we see these journalists, these professionals, bumping up against these gatekeepers. It goes on, it says, Sometime shortly before I, before I submitted my questions, the decision was made to funnel every request regarding this issue to her and her alone. The services no longer had control of their own messaging on the matter. Why this decision was made has not been made clear. I wrote and called Susan Gao for months after my initial inquiries were forwarded to her. No correspondence was answered, and no comments were given. Not a timetable for delivery, or a simple we-cannot-comment-at-this-time response to any of my inquiries. Nothing. In the meantime, prolific Freedom of Information Act filer and author John Greenwald, over at BlackVault.com, that's the guy, had received a FOIA request that not only had my question in it, but it had also had the internal correspondence within the Air Force concerning answering at least a portion of my inquiries. John was nice enough to let me know he had received the documents and that he would work with me as to the release. Now, see, that's exactly what I was talking about. John Greenwald is an expert of asking questions in the simplest, most perfect way. And I think when you ask questions that might be interpreted to be a little bit convoluted or too long, they just get tossed in the wastebasket because these people don't feel... Well, it could be they're just lazy. They don't want to have to go to the extra work of answering a compound question. But if you give them a simple question that perhaps references a specific date or a specific piece of paper that was filled out, which Greenwald is really good at doing then I think they almost feel obligated to answer those questions. You're speaking their language. But you have to understand, I think, that it's going to be impossible to have a qualitative type conversation with these people. If you want to communicate with them, it's got to be quantitative. It has to be exact. That's like you're typing commands into a computer. It has to be specific. Zeros and ones. You can't get into big conversations with these people. And goes on and says, once again, the whole idea was to get something, anything on record in regards to the Air Force, America's air sovereignty, and this issue. Well, let me tell you something. These people are not going to put themselves out there where they can be criticized or have their careers damaged. And I think that's why Greenwald has so much more success. 
He doesn't force them to put themselves out there. He just asks for copies of reports. So they're able to do it and, and not worry about being criticized over it. It goes on and says, The last thing I wanted to do was publish a story about how the Defense Department won't even acknowledge his questions. I have absolutely the best experience with the, with the DOD public affairs over many years. We work with them daily in what we do. The vast majority of those interactions are hugely productive. In fact, I've never had a negative relationship with a U.S. military public affairs officer, even on topics that were far from positive for the Department of Defense. Overall, they do excellent work and understand our requests and process them with total professionalism and timely matter. I cannot overstate how important their job is and how well they usually do it. With this in mind, I dreaded having to take issue with the DOT on their communications operations, but after nearly three months of getting no replies of any kind, I had to do something. It wasn't until I sent a very frank letter on December 5, 2019, that I received this answer from Mrs. Goff. This was the first actual correspondence I had with her since my inquiry was made in September. And then it goes on to say that uh, she says, My sincere apologies. It appears that your emails were being dumped into a junk spam folder instead of my inbox, so I wasn't seeing anything from you for a long time. Blah, 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 blah. And then, uh, sorry, don't recall getting a voicemail from you. So basically just says, sorry, don't know who you are or what you want. He says, I replied very positively. I was so glad we had a breakthrough and I wouldn't have... And I wouldn't have to write about how unresponsive the DOD's representatives on this matter was, even if they weren't willing to say much. We would actually have that on the record, and I made Ms. Goff aware of the internal documents that had some answers to my questions that John Greenwald obtained. So at least I could get some commentary on those, if anything else. Above all else, a relationship could begin, and then it goes on and says... Uh, I was happy to finally be working, blah, blah, blah. I followed up quickly after response, asking if we could have this wrapped up by the end of the week. Her reply starts to such. Yeah, we should be able to. She thanks him for his patience. Finally, I could slap a deadline. He's, then he goes on and says, the reality ended up being the complete opposite. Mrs. Goff never got back to me. What followed over the next four weeks was me reaching out, looking for an update, and getting nothing back. This was different, though, as her original excuse were clearly false because she just went back to doing the same thing even after her apology and acknowledgement of a timeline. By, by January 2nd, 2020, yet another month had gone by and it was clear that she had gone dark once again. And then he goes back and forth a little bit here through the article. And this seems like this has continued on for just several months. And it looks as though, without reading through the entire article, that Greenwald has continued to get some information on the Uf on the Air Force's response to UFOs. But as you can see, without asking these very direct questions where you're requesting specific documents about specific instances, they're just not going to go on record answering these generalized questions. He goes on, he says, sadly, we just don't know. In fact, we don't even have a no comment at this time regarding this issue from the Pentagon spokesperson handling. In the end, it is in the public's interest to know how the media is being treated by the Department of Defense on this issue after they themselves help perpetuate it. Now, that's quite a long 
article about this whole situation, but I think you can see what's happening here. You have two different journalists, two type, both of them good journalists, but both of them have a very different approach in how they try to get disclosure from the U.S. government. Now, the first fellow, the first fellow, Greenwald, as I stated, he asked very limited, specific, precise questions about and, and questions that are that are directed toward uh, acquiring evidence, lots of government documents and forms. The second fellow, as you can see, as you read the question, he sends in these quite long, involved, almost a little bit convoluted questions. He's trying to have a conversation with a bureaucrat about UFOs, and they are having none of it. It's almost like he overloaded their circuits. And I think this goes to show that if we're going to get, if we have any hope of receiving uh, disclosure at any level, Greenwald's got it figured out. You ask short, concise, clear questions, and you're asking for physical evidence in the form of government documents. And that's it. You, don't, you, can't, you can't send them a paragraph-long question and expect them to answer it back. They're just not going to. They're not going to put themselves out there and jeopardize their career by saying the wrong thing. And as Greenwald has figured out, you're dealing with gatekeepers, and so you want to allow. You want to give these guys a way out. If you're doing a FOIA request, you want to make that question short and simple. And know what you're asking for, so that they can go to a com to a computer uh, file or a file cabinet, and they can physically get it out and make a copy for you, or they can physically search it online in their database and send you the copy. You want to make it that simple, short, sweet, legalistic almost. Don't bother trying to ask for generalized disclosure because it's not going to happen. Anyway, I like this article because it really shows the inside baseball involved in uh, UFO investigatory work. And in my opinion, Greenwall is probably the best there is out there and that kind of stuff. Until next time, this is UFO Warning, over and out.